Hello folks, welcome to another SACPA session. SACPA acknowledges that this event takes place on the lands of the Blackfoot people and the Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3. And we pay respect to their past, present and future cultural heritage, beliefs and relationships to the land. SACPA is very thankful for the continuing support that we receive from both the University of Lethbridge, Shaw Spotlight and the Lethbridge Herald. We're very happy to have with us today um, Jeffrey Hodgson. Thank you for joining us, Jeffrey. Um, Jeffrey joined the CPP Investments in July 2017. He oversees the Global Stakeholder Affairs function. Jeffrey has more than 20 years of experience as a financial journalist on three continents. He began his career at Bloomberg News in Toronto and subsequently took on a variety of reporting and editing roles at Reuters. These include postings in London and Hong Kong, where he led coverage of Asia's asset management industry. More recently, he was the business editor for the Canadian Press overseeing the works of journalists in Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal, Calgary, and Vancouver. Originally from Saskatchewan, Jeffrey holds a Bachelor's of Journalism degree from Carleton University in Toronto. Thank you very much for your time and for joining us today, and we very much look forward to your presentation. Okay, Annalise, thank you very much. Um, well, I want to start by saying thank you so much to the the, uh, the organization for uh, taking the time to uh, to host us and allow us to sort of talk to you today. Um, you know, the SACPA, um, it, it's amazing when I sort of learned about the organization that you have more than a 50 year history of doing this. Um, I myself, um, originally from rural Saskatchewan, uh, my parents farm near, uh, grew up near Prince Albert. And I know just how much an organization like this that sort of encourages a discussion of, of public affairs in the community, the, re the real power and the real benefit that that can have. So again, it, it's a real uh, privilege for us to be part of that. I'm going to talk to you today, I'll give you an overall introduction to CPP Investments. Um, I'm going to start by talking about the Canada Pension Plan itself and then move through to CPP Investments, the organization that I work for, uh, what we do, what our, run our function is. Um, so I'm going to move to slide two. Uh, so again, just uh, the, the run of show today will be the introduction to the CPP, uh, talking a bit about its sustainability. Uh, the C CPP investments, uh, the investment engine of the, of the plan itself, which is the organization I work for, our investment strategy and performance. So starting off at uh, on slide three, um, some some of you are seeing some very lovely uh, multicolored sort of uh, pillars here. I just want to give some context about where uh, where we fit within basically Canada's retirement system. So when people talk about the retirement system, this the retirement system in this country, they're generally referred to you know sort of four main pillars. The first one, uh, one of the first ones being workplace savings for those uh, individuals who are, are fortunate enough to work for a, an organization uh, that provides either a defined benefit plan or defined contribution group RSPs, this sort of thing. And these are, this is where you can have, you know, can be funded by employees or and or employers uh, to sort of build up that, that key component of, of your retirement plan. There's of course private savings. Uh, again, people important to be able to save uh, in RRSPs, TFSAs, uh, bank accounts, all, all funded by individuals out of uh, out of their after-tax earnings. Um, old age security and the guaranteed income supplement. Uh, the third pillar, which is uh, in terms of the government orchestrated, 
is is the oldest going back uh, many decades when it was first introduced in the early 20th century um as you know what it's evolved to now it's a fully uh, taxpayer funded program means tested um and and again it, it'll ultimately rely reliant on the um you know, in terms of federal tax revenues to support that. And then the fourth pillar is the Canada Pension Plan, uh, which is a different entity. It is funded by the contributions from uh, employers and employees. Um, and it is not taxpayer funded. It is uh, separate, uh, separately sort of ring-fenced from general revenue. And um, and again, their uh, employers and employees, unless they're self-employment or, uh, you know, are paying, are the ones paying the contributions into the plan. I'd like to move to slide four to give a little bit of a timeline here uh, and to go back uh, to the creation of the Canada Pension Plan itself. So in the 1960s, there had already been, you know, the equivalent of old age security for, for at least a, a sometime a couple of decades. And that had evolved in, in terms of uh, its applicability and, and, the, and the breadth. But there was still an issue with, frankly, uh, you know, you know, poverty and retirement. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of Canadians still didn't have the, the means or resources to, to sort of uh, ensure their, their own retirement. So governments banded together, um, and an important consideration here to remember uh, is that constitutionally uh, pensions are sort of fall under the remit of the provinces. So when the plan, the Canada Pension Plan came into being, what had to happen was there had to be uh, the you know the, the federal government had to sit down with the provinces and come to sort of a cooperative sort of federalist model. Now at that point, Quebec decided that they would have from the initiation their own their own separate plan, uh, and the other nine Canadian provinces came together to create the Canada Pension Plan. Uh, initiated in you know, January 1966. Now, if you look down a little bit under the chart, you'll see uh, this, this lovely little diagram of what uh, depicts six and a half workers. And we put that there to illustrate something about the early Canada pension plan. It's what was called a, a term I hadn't heard till I, I became employed here, a PAYGO system. What a PAYGO system means is that for every, uh, basically you simply have, you know, six and a half workers, you deduct uh, their contributions off of their paycheck and you give it to one retiree. And you can have a system if the demographics are supportive of that, it, that can work very well um, for the period of time in which it's sustained by the demographics. Uh, but as you move along here, you'll see a few things. And, and interestingly, one thing we flag uh, when we do this presentation is 1969 birth control pill legalized in Canada. And through the 70s and 80s, you had some changes in demographics. Uh, you had lower birth rates and you had uh, increased life expectancy. So it basically changed that dynamic of, you know, six and a half workers supporting one retiree. People are, you know, fewer younger people being born and people are living longer. Now, every three years uh, to this day, there's an entity in Ottawa. It's an independent agency called the, the Office of the Chief Actuary It's within Ottawa. And it, uh, it, one of its, its roles is to basically do a three-year checkup on the Canada Pension Plan to sort of uh, make sure that it's sustainable to see how it's working out. Now, in 1995, they went to those 10 governments, the nine provinces and the federal government with some very bad news. And they said, you know, demographics are shifting and the existing PAYGO model at these existing rates is, is just not sustainable. Now, there was a, a fund there to support the Canada Pension Plan at that point, largely in, I believe, provincial debentures. Um, and the chief actuary said, look, if nothing changes, if you don't change any conditions by the year 2015, uh, the, the funds that are supporting this will be depleted. You're either going to have to significantly slash uh, benefits or, or hike uh, contributions. And effectively, over to you. Uh, because the Office of the Chief Actuary's job is to assess and provide uh, the, the governments um, with that assessment. 
so uh, we, in what I think is a heartening example of, uh, of cooperation, you had governments, uh, 10 different governments, different political parties, all kind of sitting down to try and agree on how to solve the problem. And, um, and, they, and they initiated the CPP reforms. And the, the key point that I want to sort of highlight that came out of that was the creation of the Canada, Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, which is our legal name, uh, also known, uh, we're known as CPP Investments. And we were created with, um, and the decision was made that uh, excess contributions at that point would begin flowing into CPP investments to invest at market, you know, market rates. Uh, so these higher returns that would be generated by the investments would help to sustain the plan. Um, and it worked. It's very fortunate. Uh, I'll be talking more about this as we go along. But the um, ultimately, you know, subsequent to that, when the, we've done the triennial reviews by the Office of the Chief Actuary, they have found the Canada Pension Plan to be sustainable for the next 75 years. So that is a, a very heartening development. Uh, and it's one of those things that's maybe good news that you don't hear so much about because there was a crisis. It was a, a long-term crisis in the works. It was addressed and uh, moved on from there. Um, a few other things we'll talk about is a move to active management that we that was made for CPP investments in 2006. Um, and also a little bit about the uh, enhancement of the Canada Pension Plan. Uh, in the last few years, a decision made by governments to do that. Uh, but we'll go to there. Um, moving on to the slide five. So just to tell everyone a little bit, uh, many of you are familiar, some of you may be recipients of CPP at this point, uh, many of you worker, working maybe contributors. Um, so the current uh, plan as it was set up before it was expanded, uh, sort of maximum pensionable earnings of 64,000. So basically it's collected on, on that amount um, and that, that amount was increased. Um, and the reason CPP was expanded, it was a goal of, um, when it was originally set up, the CPP was designed to uh, deliver about a quarter of the average industrial wage. So an important point to remember is that CPP was never meant to be everybody's entire re retirement. That's not the design of the plan. It was meant to be one of the pillars of the retirement that could sort of play interplay and support the others. And uh, the expansion of the plan, the design has gone to go from like 25% of its average industrial wage to one third. So to give some uh, sort of illustrative examples of that for, you know, under uh, a previous plan for the average worker earning about 55,000, you know, a year, they could see CP payments of 15,000. Now for that same worker under an expanded plan working, you know, the prolonged amount of time, uh, you're looking at more of an income of 17,000 for a higher uh, income worker that could be more, more closer to 20,000. So that's, uh, that's been the change that has um, to, to facilitate that contribution rates by both uh, employers and employees were increased, increased under this expansion plan. And that's uh, being implemented and rolled out. So uh, moving to slide six, now uh, CPP fund benefits, what is paid out under the Canada Pension Plan? I think m probably most of us are aware that CPP is there for when we, we retire. Many people, the target is 65. You you get, you know, you begin to collect CPP. Um, but uh, the, the benefit, there's flexibility around it. For those who are at least 60, you can apply for it. However, there's a penalty in terms of what you receive. Uh, likewise, if you uh, you can delay it to, I believe, 69, but there's actually a, an additional benefit that is paid out when that happens. Uh, but the, the Canada Pension Plan, it's not just that. Some people may also be familiar with the fact that it can pay out uh, disability pensions. And if you move to the next slide, um, you can also see there's a survivor's benefit um, that can be paid out and also a one-time lump sum death benefit that uh, gets paid out to the estate of a CPP contributor. So these are just a number of the uh, benefits that are paid out under the plan uh, and requires us to sort of invest the funds to, to support that. 
um, and to sort of give a final sort of overview of the plan uh, at this point um, this slide may even be close to dated because it's over 20 million Canadians participate participate in the plan I think we're if we haven't crossed up of over we're going to be coming up on 21 million contributors and beneficiaries and that is more than uh, two and a half million Albertans are part of the plan now um, going back again I'd like to talk about sustainability uh, so we'll jump ahead to maybe slide 10 where, again, I just want to reiterate uh, that last piece of the puzzle that I was talking about where uh, on the timeline of the earlier slide that the CPP fund, we are assessed every three years for sustainability by the independent office of the chief actuary. Again, the most uh, recent report indicated we're expected to meet our obligations for at least the next 75 years. Uh, I'm going to show a couple of slides that illustrate that more, but I just one, reason, one of the reasons I am uh, much appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today is to talk about that CPP sustainability because um, and when, you know, I could be back home in Saskatchewan family gatherings and this sort of thing and talking to people, maybe younger younger people, nieces, nephews, cousins, etc. And they might be like, oh, CPP, I, well, that's not going to be there for, for me when I retire. And uh, this is what kicks me in, into the mode of uh, trying to, to share the facts uh, that we have, which is um, one, one thing though we want to examine why why is that and you know how widespread is that well our organization has done some polling over the years to just sort of have a sense and understanding of how much canadians know about canada pension plan and cpp investments and what we've consistently found is um a majority of canadians either don't know or don't believe that the cpp will be there for them uh which is pretty surprising and when i talk to financial advisors and people who understand their 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 uh their they you know sometimes taken a little bit of back uh by the when we were able to share those numbers. Um, and we've talked a little bit, we have some theories about why that is. Now, one consideration is if you're of a, of a certain age, uh, my age specifically, um, you might remember the 1990s and when this whole public policy debate was unfolding. And we uh, had a situation in which there were headlines saying the Canada Pension Plan is not sustainable, it won't be there for you. And that was with good reason. It was because at that point it was it was not sustainable. It was it was set up for, to uh, to sort of uh, run out of those funds at 2015. Um, I think that's resided in a lot of the collective memory. Another factor to consider is that if you look at uh, the situation with U.S. Social Security, the U.S. Treasury every year has to come out with a you know situation talking about the Social Security Trust Fund, and they regularly announce every year that unfortunately, unless action is taken by governments. Uh, that fund will be uh, you know, depleted by the mid 2030s. Um, so again, you've got a situation in which there's that question mark around social security and the, and the depletion of that fund. That doesn't apply to Canada. It's, it's totally different systems. Um, so I think that feeds a lot into perceptions, but, um, and I think the third piece is sometimes we've got situations with companies. Unfortunately, we've seen where companies have uh, have, have uh, slipped into bankruptcy, and pensioners have have ended up not getting their company pensions, and that I think that creates a lot of uh, insecurity as well. Uh, so this is why we're very pleased to sort of talk to people and say, well, in the case of the Canada Pension Plan, uh, you can you can you know the sustainability is you know sort of look to the uh, office of the chief actuary and their studies and what they say about the durability. Uh, just another couple quick slides. Uh, slide 11, there's a 2050 projection about the CPP fund that underpins and supports the Canada Pension Plan. Uh, we've, we've crossed over $500 billion now, and uh, based on some actual projections, uh, it looks like we may be a, approximately a $3 trillion fund by 2050 as we continue to receive assets and invest those assets for higher returns. Um, and slide 12, with just a bit of an illustration with the fund at 540 
uh, or 550.4 billion at the end of uh, end of the last calendar year. That's well ahead of projections of where it was initially expected to be, um, showing that there's that buffer of, of protection as we uh, as we go forward. Now, moving on to CPP Investments, the organization that I work for. Now, if you, um, you know, again, lots of times we talking to family and folks and they're like, oh, you work for CPP, you're in Ottawa. And it's, I said, I have to explain there's a difference. The Canada Pension Plan, uh, again, it's a, you know, federal provincial sort of uh, model. Um, so it's overseen by the 10 governments. Uh, administration comes out of Ottawa, Ottawa government department who will actually, you know, send you your CPP checks. But in terms of CPP investments, I explained, we're actually the investment engine of the plan. So this fund that underpins the Canada Pension Plan is invested by us. We're, we've headquartered in Toronto, and um, and our sole mission is is to focus on that investment piece. Uh, so that's what we're uh, we're here to do to deliver the returns that sustain the fund. Um, and moving to slide 14, uh, you know our purpose, the you know provide the foundation upon which 20 million Canadians can build their financial security in retirement. Now, going a little bit into the mechanics in slide 15, you should see uh, see one with some green and purple and uh, blue boxes in it there. Um, so again, we have the situation, contributors sort of working Canadians uh, and their employers paying into the plan, flows to the, the Canada Pension Plan Fund. Those contributions are then invested by us in global markets aimed at uh, generating the investment returns needed to sustain that, the, the fund. Those, those are, are taken back and will ultimately flow in uh, benefit payments which uh, go back to beneficiaries when they uh, when they are set to receive uh, those funds I'd like to talk a bit about the structure uh, slide 16 you'll see a gold standard for national pension plans um, you know we, we have uh, staff at uh, CPP investments we've hired you know uh, many Canadians uh, people from outside of Canada global financial professionals um, and it's interesting it's often sometimes the people outside of Canada who talk about and, and flag the fact that the, the model of the Canada uh, CPP investment, uh, CPP investments, the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, sort of internationally recognized in terms of its governance. Because while we're uh, we're set up as a federal crown with uh, this oversight of our stewards, the ten governments, uh, we operate at arm's length from government with an independent professional board of directors, and that is very key and critical to sort of in terms of us, us succeeding on our mission, because people could you know. I talk to Canadians and they'll sometimes say, oh, well, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't this government or that government tell you how or where to invest? And um, and I can say no, because of the structure of the plan, plan is very clear. We operate you know, at arm's length with an independent professional board of directors. That board selects our CEO and approves our investment policies. So the investment decisions are, are made uh, by investment professionals in alignment with the, the objectives set out for us. Um, in terms of accountability, we have extensive disclosure. Uh, many major global you know pension fund managers like ourselves will report results once a year we report four times a year we have annual audits uh, a triennial review um, of, of the Canada of CPP investments uh, and uh, or the Canada pension plan by the office of the chief actuary it's also special audit provisions and importantly public meetings uh, written right into our legislation is that every two year every two years in each province that is a member of the Canada pension plan we have to have a public meeting to where we go we present on our results what we're doing and also hear from Canadians. Now moving on uh, to slide 17, um, you know, if some of you are real uh, legal fans and, and uh, they're out there, my, my wife's a lawyer, she's very enthused about things legal, uh, you can Google uh, the CPP, uh, CPPIB Act, which is our governing legislation, which is actually 
quite interesting to read because there's a simplicity to it, but also a real clarity um, around what we uh, you know, need to do and what our role is. So very clear objectives, assist the Canada Pension Plan to meet its obligation, manage CPP investments in the best interest of contributors and beneficiaries like yourselves, and, uh, and invest to achieve a maximum rate of return without undue risk of loss, having regard for the factors that affect the funding of the plan. Now that uh, third piece, uh, also referred to as our mandate, is very, very, uh, it, it's an incredibly powerful tool because it gives us the flexibility to, to make the choices about how to best uh, generate those returns to support the Canada Pension Plan. And I'm going to talk to, uh, talk to you shortly about our portfolio, our investment strategies, our portfolio, and how that plays out. Uh, now again, in terms of the organization and its governance, uh, I've sometimes heard you know, uh, stakeholders say to me, well, yeah, but couldn't uh, one government decide that they want to, you know, change your legislation to do something or, and I can say, no, 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 actually to amend the CPPIB Act, because this is an example of, you know, uh, you know, federal provincial sort of cooperation, uh, you know, in order to change it, uh, legislation has to be introduced and passed by, you know, the Parliament of Canada, but two thirds of provinces with representing two thirds of the population have to support those changes. So the expansion of the, the expansion of the Canada Pension Plan a few years ago, it didn't wasn't just uh, the Canadian government saying, oh, we want to do this. They had to sit down and ensure they had the cooperation, two thirds of the provinces with two thirds of the population. So that's uh, quite a powerful amending formula. And it, it gives us a, a certainty and a structure that, uh, that supports us in terms of uh, how we manage uh, your money. Now, moving on to investment strategy on, uh, you know, I'm going to start uh, moving to slide 20, which uh, you should be seeing a lovely uh, little pie, pie chart there with uh, some blue and some green uh, to talk about. And so I mentioned that uh, in 2006, we made a change in the way we invest. Now, prior to this, when the fund had been created, you know, they held uh, basically fixed income and then they sort of passively invested in markets. And some of you may be very familiar with, uh, you know, the sort of strategy where you can you can buy an index fund and just sort of, you know, at very low cost and just take the market as, as it kind of comes and, and earn a return that way. And, uh, and the lower cost uh, structure can be a, a tremendous advantage going forward. And a lot of people choose to invest this way. And we, and we did till about 2006. But at that point, the... Um, the, the, you know, particularly the board and the architects of the, of you know, overs and our stewards, all, all took a look at, uh, you know, whether there was an argument for moving to active management. And uh, they discovered that, that they thought at that point there was, um, that we could earn, we could earn better returns than we would by just investing passively in markets over, you know, over time uh, due to a number of advantages. Now, the first uh, set of these is what we call our structural advantages. So these are just advantages of, uh, you know, that you have without, you know, just based of structure of the plan. It's like sort of being, you know, born six feet tall. You're, you're gonna be able to reach up to that shelf. Uh, so with active management, uh, the main ones are size and scale of the fund, uh, the certainty of the assets that we have in our long-term view. And just, you know, one advantage of that, for example, is that we are able to, you know, buy assets and hold them for significantly longer than other investors might want or be able to. Uh, for example, some private equity funds manage what's perceived to be a long time, you know, five to seven years. But, you know, we literally have the capacity, if we have an asset that we think is good and a growth prospects and has a good place in our portfolio, we can hold that for decades. Um, and likewise, when markets are volatile and we've seen so much, you know, more recent, you know, recently within the last two, recently within the last months, within the last two years of the pandemic, uh, over over the last 20 years with things like the global financial crisis, you know, markets can be incredibly volatile, but we as an investor have that capacity to take the long view and often move in sometimes to take advantage of opportunities that are presented within volatile markets. 
so those are structural advantages we also have what we call our, our developed advantages uh, and among these uh, among the very key ones is internal expertise so uh, where we have decided to sort of uh, you know retain talent and do things ourselves with in-house for example investing in infrastructure is a key key part there um, you know we have to be you know, we have the opportunity to go out and hire excellent talent and then uh, you know sort of directly develop that and uh, and use that that talent to to access investment opportunities. Another one is smart partnering, where you know we sometimes we choose to do things ourselves, invest directly. Other times we turn uh, choose to partner with other organizations, uh, and that can take many forms: either going in on deals with them, or sometimes placing funds with them when we think uh, they have the ability to deliver the returns uh, that we need in a, in a market-leading way. And the finally is our total portfolio approach, which allows us to sort of take a look at holistically at all you know 550 billion dollars and decide the the most effective and appropriate way in which to manage that. Now moving ahead uh, to slide 21, we now have a pretty significant global presence. Uh, again, we're headquartered in Toronto, but if we look around the world, which is where most of our employees are, more than 1,400, but we actually uh, have offices open around the world. Um, I think there's a little competition internally to say who, who was first. Was it was Hong Kong or London, the international office? They've opened very close to the same time. Uh, and we also have offices in other jurisdictions where we um, we think it's you know brings advantage to the fund. Most recently, we opened a San Francisco office. Um, and what we found, again, a combination of things, we find that having these offices open and on the ground gives us two things, well, just many things, but two things are, two primary uh, things are the ability to see and source good investment opportunities. You know, when you're on the ground, you can sort of see, uh, understand the market, understand what is com coming up and what is there. And then for the assets that we have, these offices can also be uh, very important in terms of our stewardship and ownership of these assets. Uh, you know, we have, we, often you know buy businesses assets that uh we hold for many years so we want to ensure that we have a good line of sight on them that they're they're you know good oversight and, and governments and well run so again these network of international offices is a is a tremendous advantage for us helps us better to invest on your behalf uh, looking at slides 22 we're fairly diversified um you know if you look at diversification by asset class um interestingly the biggest uh, asset class you'll see here is private equities and uh, you know, many people understand that uh, you know, companies like pension funds invest in the stock market, which we do. We invest 28% uh, of uh, the fund in public equities. But private equities um, historically are a space where they're, they're you know, they're, they can be less liquid, but they can also be a place where um, there's a higher a sort of a higher premium because of that reduced liquidity. You can't turn around and sell a business the way you can turn around and sell a share of a of a company on the stock market but uh, uh, historically there's been a bit of a premium there so that's been an area where we think there's there's been good opportunity and we've invested significantly there and again that takes advantage of one of our you know sort of inherent advantages of uh, of that line of sight and certainty of assets uh, in order as we seek to you know maximize returns without undue risk uh, other asset classes um, Many people understand, you know, investment in bonds, uh, which we do. We also invest in credit for for companies, for businesses, and then also uh, what we call real assets, things like infrastructure, uh, uh, ports, toll highways, that sort of thing, and real estate. So. Now, looking at slide 23, just to also give a sense of the diversification by region, uh, again, we're very quite significantly diversified. Uh, our largest single market is the United States with 30%, 6% of assets. Um, but we are uh, invest around the world in markets where we think uh, there's good opportunities. Um, in Canada, we, uh, we have about 15% of the fund in Canada. Now, some people, that surprises folks a bit, and they think, oh, well, if you're 
Canada Pension Plan, we should be investing more in Canada. However, there's a tremendous diversification benefit uh, investing internationally and having you know a bigger investable universe in which to seek returns. Also, the Canada Pension Plan itself, I mean, it, it, it's a, impacted by a number of factors, including you know Canadian economic growth and uh, and you know uh, these sorts of things. If ever hypothetically you had a quote unquote made in Canada issue that that impeded uh, let's say the economy that would also hit uh, if we were invested entirely here that would hit returns as well so that diversification has a real benefit now that being said it's interesting because Canada you know if you look at it from the other way and said okay well you invest based on the investable universe um, Canada only makes up something between one to three percent of you know sort of global financial markets of global financial assets whereas we're invested at 15 percent so we're many times invested uh, relative to what uh, you know the size of Canada however this is our home market we know it well uh, we have people here we have access to great opportunities so we're very very you know comfortable with the level that we're at so and then moving on um, slide 24 again we have 20 over 25 investment strategies uh, six departments and I've talked about some of these and again things like credit investments where we had the opportunity to to lend directly to you know provide debt to businesses as well as uh, sort of buying equity uh, we have the private equity space um, and also things like again those real assets infrastructure real estate uh, things we own include you know we're one of the biggest port operators owners of one of the biggest ports uh, operators in both the United States and the UK uh, toll highways in many jurisdictions so uh, those those real assets are provide import diversification a good source of, uh, of returns yep. going to slide 25 uh, now the question is sort of you know asked how do you decide you know how to invest uh, how much put in, in equities versus debt, uh, this sort of thing. Well, we uh, basically, again, look into, take into account the needs of the plan. And uh, now, if you, you know, when the, the Canada Pension Plan was expanded, uh, you know, we have one, one portfolio, but we, we sort of, it kind of has two pieces and two reference portfolios. The reference portfolio is, is the level of risk we're sort of looking at. And it also represents the road not taken, importantly. So uh, if we look at the base kit, you know, uh, with so the, the original CPP before expansion, that part of the plan we represent, we invest about 85% in equity, uh, equities and equity equivalent, and then 15% in fixed income. Whereas additional CPP, which was designed to be focused more on all of the returns come from uh, all of what the benefits ultimately flow from the returns generated from the assets. Uh, the decision was made there to take a lower level of risk on it. So 55% equities and 45% uh, fixed income. And coming up on the half hour mark, um, going to go to just talk about performance, which is absolutely critical as we all know when we sit down and, and look at our uh, retirement statements that uh, uh, when they come in. So the performance over the last 10 years, and again, we really, you know, we report quarterly, but we often encourage people to look at our long-term returns because that is a key mark of sustainability. So the fund has grown as of the end of the calendar year to 550.4 billion. Our 10-year net nominal return after all, all costs is 11.6%. Um, now that's, uh, and, you know, interestingly, somebody we were talking to about this was, was discussing how, well, yes, but you've had markets rise quite well, that you've really done that well. And are we're able to answer, um, positively because we have uh, the reference report portfolio I referred to we use as our benchmark so basically we look to see you know since the start of uh, you know if we just invested passively if we've never gone into active management if we just had the structure we had before 2006 where would the fund be now well uh, if you look at our annual report I'd encourage you to look at a figure in there called compounded DVA and that's uh, the amount of 
basically the size of the, the amount added to the fund as a result of that active management. And as of the end of our last fiscal year, um, it was $28.4 billion. So in other words, the fund is $28.4 billion bigger than it would be if we hadn't implemented uh, active management. So. Um, and that, and then just moving through, we have again we report quarterly uh, results of both uh, base and additional CPP, and another figure, uh, slide 29, um, sort of you know again. Uh, in terms of how we're doing, uh, this is a publication called Global SWF, which looked at, you know, independent national pension funds like ourselves, as well as uh, as sovereign wealth funds, and looked at the returns of CPP investments over five years and showed us, you know, to be in a leading position there. So, uh, again, we've been able to deliver those returns to Canadians, which all or, or to the you know to the plan, which ultimately uh, flows through to benefit contributors and beneficiaries. I'm mindful I've gone a little bit one minute over, so I'm going to turn it over for questions. And Annalise um, will be reading those to me as you uh, present them and type them in. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your um, very thought-provoking presentation, actually. I must say I was guilty of one of those beliefs that you mentioned. Um, <laughs> there's lots of questions coming into the queue. So I'm going gonna, okay. gonna to start. I'm going to grab a glass of water. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to start right away with um, Henny Mandel. Our <laughs> Are our Canadian Northern Territor Territories not involved in CPP at all? Um, we, yes, they are actually. Um, I, I wish my head of government relations, who I do the presentation with sometimes, were here. Uh, but I believe, yes, I believe workers in the uh, in the territories yeah, would be paying into Canada Pension Plan as well. Now, they don't have uh, that stewardship role that uh, they, the provinces would do to the different status um, but yes we they do so workers there would pay into the Canada pension plan and would receive benefits in line with uh, as other Canadians do and in fact uh, we recently uh, it was two years ago it was one of the last trips I did before the unfortunate events of the pandemic uh, when our chief executive we went to the Yukon and it was the first time that we traveled up there and we we met with uh, with, with stakeholders business groups uh, residents uh, because you know because they do, they do are part of the Canada Pension Plan and therefore uh, had an interest in knowing what we're doing, asking questions, um, all of that. Yeah. Our next question comes from Knut Peterson. Many thanks, many thanks, Jeff, for speaking to SACPA. Alberta's present government are making noises, re -possibly, possibly replacing the CPP with a provincial pension plan. What, mm -hmm. would, what would need to be done for that to happen? Mm -hmm. um, all right. Well, this is a, a, an excellent question, and I can't go through all of the mechanics of it. But uh, and I'd also would like to reiterate a, a few things. Just first of all, um, you know that you know as, as this idea has been talked about of, uh, of whether you know provinces coming out of the the Canada Pension Plan that there's that potential because again, um, you know the Canada Pension Plan is a, a uh, you know under the constitution. Um, pensions are provincial responsibilities so uh, a province has an opportunity you know in the Canada pension plan has the you know the capacity to do that and um, and we as an organization I just want to reiterate um, while we work with and we serve you know all 10, 10 governments uh, we are a very nonpartisan organization and uh, it's very interesting as you can appreciate also appreciate this that all of the governments that we serve we, we serve uh, governments across the political stripe so we're very much focused on our mandate um, and delivering those returns but uh, yes we would uh, you know so this is a question uh, that's sort of been raised and that's that's for the people of Alberta you know to decide um, 
what we would uh, would flag a few things. One is, you know, when we talk to to you know Albertans and, and Canadians from every province of the plan, we talk about the benefits that we provide via you know the experience of this this organization and what we've been able to develop over over 20 years. Um, and also, you know, one of the advantages of the existing plan is that uh, you know we have a you know the pooling of risk that comes from the existing plan where um for example quebec uh when it when it initially set up its own plan uh there was a situation in which its demographics were actually younger uh than the rest of canada at that point um you know larger families younger younger you know families but the demographics have actually shifted in quebec so you now have a situation in which you know quebecers really re receive the same benefits as the canada pension plan but they have to play a higher premium because the demographics change, so there's there's that benefit. But uh, but in terms of the mechanics of uh, uh, of leaving the plan, no no, uh, you know it would be very complex, uh, a lot of complexity and a lot of things because uh, you know this wasn't in you know. Um, not every sort of piece of it would be envisioned when this was originally set up. And again, you'd have a situation where was Quebec set up their own plan from the very start, you know, unwinding questions like, uh, well, you know, some Canadians, you know, worked in Alberta and then moved to Saskatchewan or, or some Saskatchewanians worked their whole lives in Saskatchewan and, and moved to Alberta. Questions like that would have to be addressed. There's a lot of a lot of complexity there. Uh, so I leave it to others to sort of uh, maybe speak to that uh, that uh, you know the the elements of that. I, I would just simply state that we you know uh, we very much Alberta should also understand that uh, the you know the Canada Pension Plan it is their plan. They are you know as a province uh, they you know it's not a not a you know federal plan but it's a provincial federal model. Um, and I sort of talk about the DNA of uh, you know Western. I'm a, I'm Saskatchewanian in the its organization. Actually, just through this wall, uh, the person working next to me is originally from Calgary. My boss is originally from Calgary, so we're very much integrated and and, and part of and, um, and the lives of uh, of Albertans. So uh, we also want to reiterate that as uh, make them understand our role. Yeah. The next question is uh, on a similar uh, topic. Ian Hurdle. <coughs> Uh, Ian Hurdle, if Alberta manages to form a separate provincial fund, what would, what will be the downside or the downsides for the province and the rest of the country, especially if they are not completely at arm's length? Mm, okay. Well, um, again, you know, I, I can speak to, you know, the advantages that we have. Uh, I, you know, we're talking about a, a hypothetical situation where what would, you know, what exactly the structure and, and such could play out that that would all have to be uh, you know figured out but we given uh, that arm's length relationship with what people have with the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board again we've got a situation where because of our original structure and then also the fact that you have you know the, the, the federal government couldn't change it without the provinces the provinces couldn't change it without the federal government uh, you have to sort of check on you know we, we set up or at arm's length so the mission to manage on behalf of Canadians you know is very clear our investment mandate is very clear and um, I also think of this story once uh, in my journalism career where I previously worked uh, one of the places um, it was Thompson Reuters Corporation and, and Roy Thompson who was uh, a Canadian you know entrepreneur who ended up owning the Times of London he had uh, you know this um, this little trick he did because he owned the Times he and you know many people would sort of come to him influential powerful people to say oh the times is investigating this or that uh could you just help me out as a publisher and tell you know 
do this about this story or that story. And he always carried a little something in his wallet, which was basically said, a card that said, as publisher, I don't interfere in editorial decisions. So sorry, you'll have to go, you know, talk to the, to the paper, talk to the editors, that sort of thing. And we got that level of protection with CTP investments in the Canada Pension Plan because of that arm's length relationships, because uh, governments know that that board is there. You know, Canadians can rest assured that uh, it will be developed. You know, the money will be managed on their behalf. Um, you know, based on uh, the criteria set out in our legislation. So, so that's the benefit. And again, uh, talking about some of the elements, I've, I've touched on uh, again that element of risk demographics. It's always. Um, you know, understanding that by pooling uh, the risk, uh, there's an advantage in, in terms of if demographics ever shift, you know, um, you don't have that, that you're not as susceptible to having to sort of change um, as a result if they ever go negatively in your favor or negatively uh, as, a, as an individual jurisdiction. Yeah. Our next question comes from Mark Goodall. Mm -hmm. I, contribute, I contributed to both QPP and CPP and are currently and I'm currently receiving CPP is QPP contributing to my CPP um, an excellent question I will be fun to say I don't have a hundred again hundred percent explain the mechanics of that but the way that CPP and QPP were set up was to have a an agreement for portability so that's again that one of the advantages that uh, the existing plan is if you're in Saskatchewan or, or Alberta or Ontario you can move to any other province um, the there was a, an agreement that had to be struck at the beginning uh, to ensure sort of portability of benefits uh, in terms of the how that is netted out at the the national level for someone who paid into QPP retiring in Canada or vice versa. I'm not 100% sure on the mechanics, but there there was an agreement that had to be set up to sort of ensure that level of, uh, of portability of benefits. Leona Jacobs, mm -hmm. to, to what extent does ECG, and then in brackets, formerly known as SRI, inform your CPP investment strategies? How clean environmentally, socially, and in governance is the CPP portfolio? Okay, excellent question. Um, and uh, I think one thing that she's talking about there is uh, ESG, which is environmental, social, and governance factors. Um, you know, so things like dealing with addressing climate change or human rights or the way that an organization, a uh, way that its board is constructed. Um, I would highly encourage, and this is a bit of a plug in here, I have a bias here, which I should share, which is uh, when I joined the organization, part of my role was to produce our annual report on sustainable investing. Uh, and I'd encourage, uh, you know, everybody who's, who's interested in this to go to our website and, uh, and find the sustainable investing section. And there's, uh, again, the annual report there that explains how we integrate uh, ES G factors into our investing. Now, a thing to understand is that, um, you know, when people talk about environmental social governance, there, there can be different approaches of how you do it. It's like, uh, we only invite, uh, invest in these assets that meet this sort of criteria. Um, it might maybe at the exclusion of many others. With uh, CPP investments, ESG is, is basically integrated into our investment process uh, because we believe and what we've seen is that um, companies that do better on ESG factors, it either, you know, it becomes important in terms of preserving and creating investment value over the long term. In, in other words, the companies are sort of getting these, these things right over time. Um, you know, it's absolutely, you know, critical. So we 
we look at things through an ESG lens to ensure that, for example, if you're going to buy an asset, if there are challenges around, for example, ESG factors that need to be rectified and there's risks related to that, we have to ensure that's reflected in the price. And likewise, we, you know, we engage with companies uh, and we use our voting power where we, you know, where we see issues where we think that companies can better be advanced on, um, you know, ESG. We don't, we don't divest. We don't, you know, we don't screen out uh, companies in that regard. Uh, what we do is we look to see, you know, if there's an opportunity to engage. If we, if we see that and there's an impairment to value or risk there, we have that option of selling on, on that basis. But we, we think it's uh, very important. And uh, when I joined, I, I confess, while well, I had written about a new a new bit about the organization I hadn't appreciated the degree to which uh, we have a sustainable investing team as well that you can read about on uh, on the website and in the report and again these are individuals uh, who are working with all of our investment professionals to better understand uh, all of these factors how they impact things how we can engage with companies to improve these factors uh, you know and, and be a voice a, a positive constructive voice in that regard within the context and, and again the important goal of generate protecting value and generating value for Canadians for the long term Okay, Laurie Schultz, arguably lower birth rates impacted the 6.5 employees, mm -hmm. would have allowed more women to enter the workforce contributing to CPP. Mm -hmm. Curious if this factor was taken into account in your analysis. Okay, excellent. Um, actually, I, should, I, I have to give credit where credit is due for that analysis. That is the analysis done by the Office of the Chief Actuary. Um, and, and again, we work very closely with that office because you know every three years they do that deep assessment on us. So they have to understand what we're doing, our approach, that sort of thing. But it is the uh, Office of the Chief Actuary itself that is, is baking in those figures um, and sort of talking to them. When I first had the opportunity to learn more and actually meet the Chief Actuary and see what work they do, it is, it is very impressive and it's very extensive. So it's taking into account, you know, it's taking into account birth rates. It's taking into account, um, you know, women in the workforce, number of Canadian workers in the workforce, projected economic growth, uh, again, immigration affecting things, uh, how lifespans, increasing lifespans are, are playing out. All of these pieces are taken into their very deep sort of analytical study of the sustainability. So, so as things have sort of moved along and if things ever changed, if birth rate changed or there were more immigration of younger people, this sort of thing, that, uh, that triennial review would take into account these new factors every time and, and it does yeah. our next question comes from Ian Hurdle with political and financial rule changes in Hong Kong will this cause an office move to a different Southeast Asian base okay uh, well it's all noted that we have a Hong Kong office um, well, I can't speak um, and just generally I'll, I'll speak to uh, make clear to folks um, I, I, I'm usually here to speak forward on, on, on things that have happened and where we sit and, and sort of a structure of things. I can't speak to any you know specifics around where we would invest, for example, or that kind of thing, or, or maybe a decision of, the, of this point. But uh, I'll, sim I'll simply put out there that we um, we look at, uh, you know, in terms of locating our offices, we make assessments on, on again, where that benefit is to Canadians and, and uh, you know, in terms of the ability and the line of sight and the opportunity it gives us in terms of investments and such. Um, and also that, uh, you know, that we are constantly evaluating and, and again, situations and, and going back to the question about demographics, you know, 
the, these situations always change. You know, they're always dynamic. There's always a flow. So what the political situation was three years ago, you know, can be different three years from now or what the demographics are, that sort of thing. So we're continually uh, reviewing and assessing. And, uh, and we do that in terms of also the, you know, every market that we invest in, we make assessments about, you know, what is the, the political and, 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 you know, a geopolitical sort of uh, structure and, you know, environment in which we're operating and what does that mean for uh, the risks involved, potential returns as well, all, all of that piece. So we're, we're continually assessing uh, events as they happen. Yeah. Uh, Leona Jacobs, to what extent are CPP investments informed by federal government initiatives? For example, the federal climate action plan to reach net zero. Are such are such government initiatives considered? Hmm. Okay. Well, um, I'll put it out there that uh, initiatives of of, uh, of the federal government or provincial governments or any the governments of any jurisdictions which in we we invest, we are looking at them from an investment perspective. Uh, for example, we might uh, you know one country country might have a policy around. Uh, this sort of initiative about levels of taxation, uh, whereas a second country may have a different approach to, to taxation. Uh, what we're, we're coming at the perspective of is because, again, we operate, our mandate is, is very clear. We don't, you know, we don't take into account the, you know, directives. It, it is about, you know, maximizing return without undue risk, taking into account the needs of the plan. However, to be a successful investor, what you have to do is understand the policy environment of all the different jurisdictions that you're operating in. So, uh, so what the Canadian government might be doing, or the Alberta government, or the U.S. government, or the you know, um, you know, pick a government, the Italian government, uh, the policy environment that they're kind of creating into place. We are looking to manage our portfolio in that context and understanding what the implications are going to be. So, in that sense, we're we're always studying what all governments are doing and how it will affect you know, the, the existing investments, investments we may yet do. But in terms of the uh, government being able to sort of set that level of policy, we have that arm's length relationship where we can, um, you know, we have, we have that, that, that uh, sort of written into our structure that allows us, uh, gives us that distance. But we, we, pay, we pay tremendous attention because, you know, government decisions at all levels in all jurisdictions have uh, long-term uh, investment implications. Our next question comes from Beth Mundell. With so many people working part-time or in the gig, gig economy, for them, the underlying assumption of a quarter to a third of their pension doesn't work. So if, is this being taken into account and allowing gig part-time workers to, con to contribute more and then receive more when they retire? Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I will say that uh, again, we, you know, as uh, the demographics of the funds are, are, are being taken into account, uh, you know, or all of the factors, including, you know, uh, the size of the workforce, you know, part-time versus full-time, all that sort of thing. That would be a consideration for being being looked at at, at that structure. But uh, I will say, in terms of a policy decision, the expansion of the Canada Pension Plan. I, I know that one of the arguments made was that because, you know, if you were maybe, uh, you know, I had the you know, at one point was working, worked for a company for more than 20 years and, and uh, eventually changed employer. And I remember at the time, you know, some of my friends who had who'd worked more in that gig or contract type economy were, you know, said you're a bit of an outlier, you know, 50, 60 years ago, people would work for an organization for 20 years and have that, that pension and that level of, of support. Um, 
so I think when governments were deciding to expand the CPP uh, to go more, you know, go larger, part of the consideration was that you know, that there are fewer uh, Canadians, I think, who would be covered by, say, a defined benefit pension. So that had to be a consideration. So the decision was made that they would, you know, have the opportunity to pay more or, or that they would be paying more into the Canada Pension Plan as a result, getting more of that because, you know, if you are a CPP contributor, um, and that can be for self-employment as well, where you'd have to pay both halves, well, both pieces, but um, you know, it doesn't matter if you have one employee for 20 years or 20 employees for 20 years, depends on the ultimately the level of income and the contribution rate that you would have. But that the CPP, one of the benefits of it is that it follows you everywhere, so to speak. Um, so that was, again, a consideration and design of the plan. But in terms of our, our we don't, uh, again, the, the design of that plan is left to policymakers. That decision was, uh, was, was them. Uh, in terms of us advocating for larger or smaller, um, what we simply did at the time was we were asked the important question is if the Canada Pension Plan was expanded, do we have the capacity to, you know, invest more on the behalf of the fund were to grow? And we did the assessment and we were able to go back and say, yes, this is would be the plan and the structure and how we would go about it. But uh, but that is uh, a decision that ultimately sits with the policymakers. Our next question comes from Knut Peterson. With the possibility of a future guaranteed annual income being implemented in Canada, how may that interact with CPP? Mm, okay, uh, a very interesting question. Um, I would have to, you know, uh, it's a, it would be, a, it's a somewhat speculative question because I know it's an idea that's talked about, the idea of a basic income or universal basic income. Um, but that, that is very speculative and I don't know of any government that's quite pursuing it. I will we'll share a little something that might be a bit of an illustrative example because I, I, I again, also sometimes talk about this with with, with uh, family and, and, you know, the idea that people talk, oh, well, you know, there's, you know, what if we created this basic income? And I point out, actually, there is a basic income. Uh, to it, it's not fully, it's not universal by any means, but actually, if you look at old age security and that uh, GI, GIS, the Guaranteed Income Supplement, uh, that is actually effectively a kind of a basic income because if you were, let's say you were somebody who were, you know, you were ill your whole life and you were never able to, to work and save, um, when you turned uh, 65, or young, I think you could apply when you're younger for a reduced amount, but let's say at 65, you could apply for, you know, old age security and you would receive it irregardless of, um, of that. So there's a, it's a kind of a basic income in a way, if you think about it, uh, it's not what it's called. And uh, I may be stirring a little bit of debate here, but I, I give the example. But if you look at old age security, um, how does that interact with Canada Pension Plan? Well, again, Canada Pension Plan depends entirely upon how many years, how much you contributed, and over how many years. So, if you if you manage to work the full 40 years at a full rate, you're going to get the full amount. If you worked 20 years at the full rate, you know you get half of that. Uh, so it's always uh, tinged to that. But um, what it is is it's combined, you know, with CPP and old age security. Uh, a couple things to consider: Canada Pension Plan is uh, taxable. So if you know you uh, move into retirement, you have a lower income, and you're going to pay a lower income tax, you'll get to keep most of your Canada Pension Plan. If you were, you know, if a higher income in retirement, that would be the CPP payments are subject to um, to to taxation. Um, there's the interaction there with old age security, where um, past, I believe past a certain level, they begin to claw it back up to you know, sort of as you escalate. Something I've heard about from uh, retirees. And uh, I'm wondering if there might be a bit of an illustrative example there, but uh, so we, I think we have a, a kind of a old age security pulling in a bit of a role of basic income for seniors. Uh, so the question is, it might be interesting to sort of look, 
illustrative to look at how that interplays with CPP. Our next question comes from um, Bev Mundell. How are investments protected against global factors like war, inflation, pandemic, stock market crashes, political issues, etc.? Mm -hmm. Okay, great question. Um, and the you know, and you know, just to put it out there, uh, you know, frankly, um, you know, you when you when you invest, you know. It, there's a trade-off between like risks and returns and sort of working your way up the, the sort of spectrum. We, we could, for example, buy a, a Government of Canada 30-year bond or put everything in the Government of Canada bonds and there's that safety and security uh, of principle or, well, depending on buy them at market rates or, you know, like a, a GIC type example. But, you know, you, you know when you as an individual go to invest in a GIC, um, there is a, uh, you, you, you know, you get a security but you receive this slow return you're not going to lose your principal but uh you you do get a situation in which you, your upside is limited whereas if you choose to invest in financial markets and wider assets equities uh you know real assets um you you have the potential to earn the higher return however there is uh the greater risk that comes with all of that so i'd say a couple of things about how uh, you know levels of protection though in there I think the main one and the most powerful one, um, and I was sort of learning about economics when I was younger, this phrase always stuck with me. It was, uh, I forget the name of the Nobel Prize winning economist who sort of studied investment and investing. And they said, basically, there's one, the only free lunch in investing is diversification. So I took you through the slides of, um, you know, what, you know, how we invest very broadly, both in terms of asset classes, but also geographies. Um, so again, we get a situation where you might have a, an issue in one geography. Um, however, you know, it, let's say it was Canada. There was there was something that would happen here that would hit all of the 15% of the portfolio that is in, in Canada. However, the fact that we have those assets in other jurisdictions, that's a level of, of protection that comes with that. Um, another thing, uh, an example would be uh, inflation. Well, you know, inflation is very negative for fixed income returns that eats into, um, you know, real returns. However, um, oftentimes infrastructure can form or uh, real assets, real estate, can be a hedge against uh, inflation because, for example, you might might have inflation in a jurisdiction, but uh, but you might be able to raise rents uh, consequently as a result of that. Or sometimes equities can perform well if you own equities that are you know in in consumer goods companies that are able to raise their prices. This sort of thing. So that level of diversification, and then in terms of the, the organization for our actively managed portfolio, we're constantly looking at these risks, risks and constantly assessing. And we have you know we have a, a, a you know a chief investment officer chief investment strategist we have individual investment teams and whenever we're buying you know you know we're, we're doing this investing we're doing it through the lens of what is the risk return here and doing our best to assess all risks including our our department uh, that i'm in is involved in the the assessment of political risks and uh and you know sort of the geopolitical sort of factors unfolding um so again i, I would say it's a combination of things but diversification is very important both in terms of geography and assets and then that that rigorous sort of assessment uh of risk adjusted returns whenever we're doing investments uh, it's a key part of sort of active management our next question comes from Mark Goodall. Are details of the portfolio available to the public other than asset classes? Yes, uh, another opportunity for uh, me to encourage you to go onto our website and you can actually see in terms of our holdings, we, uh, we get pretty significant, uh, you'll look into, um, if you go onto the website, you'll find that we disclose our portfolio holdings once a year. Um, so you will see as, Whoa. 
Well, folks, Skype just dropped us. I'm sorry to say. Um, I'm trying to um, reconnect with Jeffrey. Hopefully, he will join us shortly. Um, but it looks like Skype just got dropped. Um, bear with me for a few minutes, and we'll see if we can get Jeffrey back. Yes. Please. Oh, yes. sorry. Um, yeah. Okay. Apologies. We had a very good 56 minutes there without technical issues. That was my fault. Uh, I basically will not do that again. But I tried to go to our website to find the exact spot. But if you go to cppinvestments.ca.com, uh, uh, you will find uh, a list of our portfolio holdings there. Um, and again, once a year. Now we can't disclose it live in real time. There are. You know, investment and commercial considerations about why we wouldn't want to do that, but uh, but I encourage you to go on and have a look at, at what we're able to disclose publicly. Excellent, thank you. Um, so that was Mark Goodles. We have um, a last question um, from Knut Peterson. Approximately, at what age have most pensioners received back what they? or slash their employers paid in and if they pass away very early should the payout be indexed okay uh, yes um, now that's a question i'm going to put out there um i you know i'll, I'll share a personal experience on this because uh in terms of my own family one of my parents was uh, getting ready to sort of take her cpp and um and, and we were discussing it and i was was saying that uh and, and the important thing is to uh, potentially to talk to a financial advisor because you have to, uh, I think it depends on sort of individual circumstances, this sort of thing, but, but talking about some of the bigger factors at play, um, you know, you know, if you, what I, my understanding is, is, and a financial can advisor can sort of tell you exactly where, and in, you know, the specific circumstances, they had done some calculations and said, oh, it was approximately, you know, if, if my parent were to live past the age of 82, uh, they would be better off, uh, you know, they would be sort of the further ahead, um, you know, at that point in deferring a pension and um, sort of receiving better better benefits. Because everyone, I, I get these questions and I have to send people back to their financial advisors because they're like, how, what age should I take my pension? And, uh, you know, what would your, your advice be there? And I'm like, we, we manage the money. We don't offer financial advice. But some of the considerations that are play are one, you know, do you need the money? Uh, maybe some people need it at an earlier age than others. You know, so a financial advisor, you know, the, if you're assessing your own portfolio, you have to ask yourself that question. Uh, but another question, which unfortunately we were maybe, you know, fortunately we can't answer, but we don't know exactly how long each of us is going to live. And if we could go to our financial advisors and say, we're going to live at this, you know, exactly to this point, when do I take my CPT? Um, you know, we could do that. Um, now, in our, you know, in this situation, I, I pointed out to my parent that uh, that their own parents had lived well into their 90s, you know, mother had lived into the 90s, uh, father was over 100, so it would make sense probably to defer and, and wait and, and this sort of thing, because as long as they could live past, uh, I think it was early 80s, they would they would benefit from that. And then uh, my, my, my advice wasn't, rega wasn't regarded at that point, and uh, that's, so it goes. But uh, so again, on this one, I'd, I'd really encourage people um, to sort of look at they have to know their individual situations and if they are able to get some assistance with somebody who can help them with their planning look at their existing assets their personal situation uh, that would be the best route for a final question i missed it in the queue my apologies laurie um, with respect to portability of cpp between provinces if alberta was to exit from cpp would you anticipate that an alberta cpp that 
an Albertan CPP would continue were they were they to move from Alberta? Well, uh, again, that would all have to be. I, I think there's a, a component of of things that if there were something like this were to happen, there'd have to be an agreement worked out. There'd have to be, but but of some kind. But the the nature of it again, it, it is, you know, uh, you, you're you're looking at a, a tightly interwoven. You know, talking about people moving between jurisdictions. I mean, uh, there's incredible incredible complexity that would sort of come out about as part of this. So, uh, I hesitate to sort of speak to that because again. The, the level of complexity involved in in all of all of the considerations, I you know can't can't get into the depths of that. That just just people would have to understand that, you know, this is this would be an unprecedented thing with Quebec. They started out on their own and it was sort of set out on their own own things. So that uh, that 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 challenge of, of sorting everything out, uh, you know, when you know when you do something like that, people have to take into account also the costs and. Uh, uh, all of the dynamics that uh, the interplay there and, and complexity can be a challenge. Yeah. Okay, well, that's it for the questions. Um, there's a lot of thank yous. Uh, wow, lots of great information. Uh, thank you so much for your great talk. Excellent information. I really enjoyed your presentation. So there's lots of thank yous out there in the queue. On behalf of SACPA, um, thank you so much for your time, Jeffrey. Um, before we wrap up this session, however, do you have a take-home message for our viewers? Uh, I think my main take-home message would be uh, to encourage uh, maybe, maybe a couple, if you'll allow me. One is uh, I haven't been able to answer all of your questions here and this sort of thing, particularly about the organization, but we have great resources. Our website, CTP Investments, go and take a look. You'll find all sorts of information there about you know great videos and, and structures in, uh, about how we operate, what our, what our focus is. So I think that would be would be useful. And uh, maybe another takeaway, remember when you hear that younger niece or nephew in their, their 20s at the, the barbecue or whatever saying, I'll never get CTP, uh, remind them, uh, tell them about the office of the chief actuary, the assessment, and say you may have many things to worry about in your life, but maybe this is one you should be worrying about less than than uh, than you are now, and so we'll bring you up to focus on other things. So those would be uh, probably my two, two main takeaways. Excellent. Thanks very much. And to our viewers, uh, we hope that you'll join us again next week with uh, Bob Ashka. Can AMCO be fixed or saved? Our 500 thousand Albertans and their families in jeopardy with AMCO. I hope you'll join us then and have a good week everybody. Thank you very much.